Michael Mansour was a U.S. Navy SEAL, a gunner by training. He was killed in Ramadi two years ago. And I'll read from his official U.S. military summary of action. It reads, an enemy fighter hurled a hand grenade onto the roof. The grenade hit Mansour in the chest and bounced onto the ground. He immediately leapt to his feet and yelled grenade to alert his teammates of impending danger, but they could not escape harm. Without hesitation and showing no regard for his own life, he threw himself onto the grenade, smothering it to protect his teammates. Mansoor's actions could not have been more selfless or clearly intentional. And that's why it was so emotional today at the White House. Mr. and Mrs. Mansoor, America owes you a debt that can never be repaid. This nation will always cherish the memory of your son. We will not let his life go in vain. This nation will always honor the sacrifice he made. May God comfort you. May God bless America. Come on up. Just as no parent should ever have to bury a child, it hurts deeply when a nation buries its young heroes, and that showed on the president's face today. Michael Mansoor was from Garden Grove, California. He was a devout Catholic who loved Johnny Cash and his beloved Corvette. He was a star athlete in school from a military family. Three quarters of the missions he went on in Iraq were under heavy fire. His Medal of Honor is the third to be awarded so far in the Iraq War, a conflict that has seen countless acts of heroism. Michael Mansoor would have turned 27 this past Saturday. podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. Uh, we have an interesting episode for you guys today as i interviewed kevin lace and kevin is a former u.s navy seal uh corpsman and a sniper uh who deployed to ramadi in 2006 which was really some of the worst uh ramadi at that time was one of the worst places to be on the planet and uh kevin was operating alongside uh U.S. Navy SEAL sniper Chris Cow, who many of you or all of you know, and Kevin just put out a book called The Last Punisher. It's a New York Times bestseller. I just finished it uh, yesterday, and uh, it's a very good book. It's a great read. And um, But before I get into the uh, interview with Kevin, um, you know, I just wanted to send my condolences out to the family of... Staff Sergeant Matthew Thompson, uh, the Staff Sergeant was killed yesterday in Afghanistan during an IED strike. Uh, he was an Army Special Forces Staff Sergeant, and um, he is the second U.S. combat death in Afghanistan this year. Uh, the other, Matthew McClintock, he was also a, a Special Forces soldier. And, um, you know, this is just a, a stark reminder that there is still a war going on and you know Americans are dying overseas so you know once again I just want to send my condolences out to his family and his loved ones uh you know obviously it's a difficult time so uh with that being said now I will get into the interview with Kevin Lace 
Hey, what's going on, guys? For this interview, I'm on with Kevin Lace. And Kevin is a former U.S. Navy SEAL and the author of The Last Punisher. Uh, Kevin, how's it going, brother? Not too bad. Can't complain. Florida's beautiful this time of year. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, in New York, it's been, like, really humid. Um, so we've been getting, the last week or two, we've been getting some pretty nasty weather. Yeah. Now, being in the city when it's hot, man, it's kind of like being in Ramadi in 2006. Yeah. Well, not, not quite, but not quite. Um, so, Kevin, um, you you have this book out. Um, I'm about halfway through it, and it's a very good read. Uh, so I definitely recommend people to pick it up if you're interested. And it's it's pretty much a book about uh, your experience uh, during a, a rotation to Ramadi. And at the time, Ramadi was really one of the most dangerous places on the planet uh, to, for anyone to be. And um, the, the insurgency kind of moved from Fallujah to Ramadi, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And uh, and then you guys were sent over there to kind of spearhead the effort uh, against uh, the insurgency there. And, you know, in the book, you, you detail a lot of what that was like. And obviously, it's very dangerous stuff. You were deployed with uh, uh, U.S. Navy SEAL sniper Chris Kyle, who m most of the audience know, or most of the country knows. And he was a close friend of yours. So, you know, obviously it's a historic deployment. Um, and what, how, how long have you been out of the Navy now? Um, I got out of the Navy in 2010. Uh, you know, I did eight years total, <clears throat> one year inactive ready reserve. And, you know, that 2006 deployment was really, I guess the most pronounced out of out of my deployments. I deployed again in 2008. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, Ramadi was at that point in time, and it's still relevant today. It, it was one of those areas that was very dangerous, like a lot of places in Iraq. But it was kind of the epicenter of, you know, the insurgency, the Al Qaeda insurgency, um, sectarian viol violence. Uh, but it was also primed to be the template for the surge. Um, you know, we deployed in 2006, April, 2006 in support of, you know, the first of the 502nd, uh, the three, six, three, eight Marines in a new campaign to win the hearts and minds called tribal engagement, um, uh, which involved utilizing the local public to, um, to one instill confidence and two uh, create a greater footprint of coalition support in the area and root out the insurgency, um, so we really, we really supported, we, we supported them, you know, we did a lot of the stuff, you know, um, a lot of the operations before, you know, cops were secured and stuff like that, but we were mainly there to support them from a couple different platforms. One obviously was, um, you know, direct action missions, which were our bread and butter, um, you know, presence patrols. So working with the Iraqi security forces patrolling daytime, nighttime around these areas. Um, and then, you know, the third was the sniper element, which proved to be the most effective. And one of the gentlemen in our platoon uh, was Chris, you know, Chris Kyle. And, um, you know, that deployment, uh, you know, together, our platoon, you know, had over, you know, 230 confirmed kills. And Chris had 101 of those. Um, and our task unit together had, you know, 330 confirmed kills. And that's all, you know, not airstrikes. That's not all that, you know, that's point of aim, point of impact, you know, rifle, mainly sniper. So 
um, we did the biggest amount of support, you know, from the sniper capacity in Ramadi. And Ramadi, so so let's backtrack a little bit. Um, you, if I'm remembering correctly from your book, you you weren't particularly uh, like you didn't have it in your plans to join the Navy. It just kind of happened. Um, and was it nine eleven that motivated you? Yeah, I had a atypical. You know, I, my my family's always always been very supportive of the military, very patriotic. I'm from Connecticut, um, and I never really had any aspirations to go in the military. Um, I wanted to go to college to be the first one in my family to go to a four year institution and become a. I want to become a doctor. Um, so I went to James Madison University in Virginia and really uh, had an underwhelming performance and my grades were terrible the first semester um, and they got a little bit better the second and the third. But the fourth semester for me, because I did a summer course, um, was the fall of, of 2001. And, you know, on 9-11, I woke up and I was I was hungover. I was in a haze. You know, I'd been partying the night before and I remember walking over to my computer and turning on AOL Instant Messenger. For, for all your old listeners out there like me, yeah. you know, <laughs> AOL Instant Messenger ticker was up there. And it said, trade centers crumble. And I was thinking, I was young, dumb, naive. And I was thinking that, oh, wow, the stock market crashed. So I kind of like turned it off. And wow. my mom calls me up and she's like, hey, turn on the news. I was a poor college student. I didn't have the news in my, in my house. So I went to my next door neighbors and saw the towers, you know, coming down, um, saw people jumping and it kind of like hit me like, Oh shit. And, um, I just got to thinking and my mom called me back and told me that our, our really good friend, uh, Bruce Eagleson was still in the tower. He had called his family had gone back up to get some of his coworkers and, you know, they had heard from him. And I just remember things had changed. Um, you know, obviously for everybody over the age of, um, you know, 15, you know, it's changed their life. Um, and, uh, you know, things were going to be different. And I remember going back to Connecticut, going back to a memorial service for Bruce and, you know, no remains were ever found. And, uh, I knew I needed to change my life. And I went down to the, uh, recruiting station and I went to go join the Marines. You know, I was, I grew up watching Heartbreak Ridge and, you know, you know, all the classic Marine movies. Um, uh, and the Marines were actually out to lunch. Right. So, so I went down and I, you know, I ended up going to the Navy office and I walked in, I saw a poster on the wall and it was, you know, a bunch of seals climbing out of the water. And I was like, I want to do that. And the recruiter was like, Hey, hold on a second. It's a little bit harder than just saying you want to do it. And I was like, no, I want to do that. And, um, I did some research, you know, I read all the Marcinko books. I, you know, read, um, you know, the warrior elites by Dick couch. Um, yeah. and I was like, I can do this. And, um, I pretty much got the seal contract went to boot camp and then, uh, showed up at buds two forty five, And then, um, I had a back injury halfway through buds, uh, you know, second phase and I got rolled to two forty six, and the rest, as they say, is history. When you get rolled, just uh, something I was curious about, how, how long does it take until you're ready to, to continue through buds? You know, it's, it's situationally dependent. Um, okay. like my back, my back injury, I had a, a herniated disc L five S one, um, with ridiculous pain down the leg. 
Um, so my injury just involved like, was I think it was a two month rollback to the next class. So I got, you know, um, transitioned from, uh, you know, 245 to, you know, rollback land or PTR under the jurisdiction of PTR. And then, um, then I just 246 came to the beginning of second phase. I jumped in with them. I think it was about two months. Okay. And, and just uh, another question, does that, you know, since you're, you're recovering for that two months, is your, your endurance, your stamina, is that taking a hit? And, and does that make it more difficult when you do jump back in? Uh, no, you know, what, what, I did, and, you know, the medical treatment has gotten a lot better. Back then, it was just like, hey, you're on light, limited duty for the next, like, two weeks. You know, kind of, like, shake it off, take some Motrin, and, and then we're slowly going to get you back into, you know, swimming. Um, they held off on the running for a while, but they had a, uh, a dedicated staff that would work with your, you know, making sure that you were working out, that um, you were staying okay. at that level. But, um I, it really comes down to your, it does take a hit a little bit and, you know, you kind of like you get out of sync because you're in a class and then they bump you and you're, you know, in rollback land and then you have to start up with some, a, a class that's already in motion, already functioning machines. So it's kind of that, you know, team aspect. that's a little weird. Yeah. Um, but as with anything with buds, man, you know, it doesn't matter how hard it is. If you're going to do it and you want to do it, you're going to make it happen regardless. Right. Right. Okay. So, I know, like, it varies from different soft units, you know, the time that from when you complete your selection and all your training to the time that you're actually in combat. Um, and Was that a long period for you after you were completed with BUDS and, and, and everything else? Yes, I joined the Navy in March 2002, and I didn't show up in combat until April, late March, early April uh, 2006. Um, so I finished buds in November, 2003. Then I went to back then, you know, they used to send buds guys to jump school at Fort Benning. So I did four weeks at Fort Benning. I got rolled back a week for being a jackass. Um, and then, uh, and then I went to seal qualification training, which took me through the spring into early summer of 2004. I went to Alaska for cold weather training for another month and, from there, since I was a medic, I went to the uh, Special Operations Combat Medic School at Fort Bragg and spent, you know, eight, nine months there being that, you know, first responder, uh, special operations paramedic. So that was that was a great experience because I got to work with, you know, Ranger medics, Green Beret medics, civil affairs. Um, and the instructor cadre was really well versed in like the stuff that had been happening up until you know, that point. So we had guys from Afghanistan and guys coming back from Iraq and showing us like, Hey, this is what's working. This isn't what was, what's working. Um, so I finished there in the January, 2005. And then I checked in the seal team three, um, uh, month later. Okay. So typically, you know, for anyone who wants to go to the, the, the medic route, whether it's in uh, special operations or, or for the Navy, it would be a corpsman or, or whatever, wherever it is you're at that will typically add like a, at least seven or eight, nine months or even longer to your, your training. Um, right. It's gotten better now. You know, everything's gotten better since I got out. Um, you know, guys are getting stronger. They're faster. Um, the training's getting very, very technical. Um, but yet you're absolutely right. It takes the Stockholm course, I think is close to like eight, nine months now, but it'll add some extra time. And if you're a, 
a PJ, you know, you're going to, it's going to be quite a bit more time, but I do, I do promote the medical route um, because when you get out, those skills are the most easily transferred. Um, like as a former medic, I was able to go back to school and then go to physician assistant school, grad school. And is that, so now, cause I've had medics on before, uh, mainly uh, 18 Deltas, uh, Army Special Forces guys, and, and I've had some Marsat guys on as well. And it from what I'm gathering is that, you know, after 15, 16 years of war, guys are coming out of the uh, special operations fields. And, you know, they're, they're getting into EMT or, or, or running their own medical courses or whatever it is, and it's really increasing the quality of uh, trauma medicine and things like that. Um, do have a lot of the medics that you know or you've served with come out and continue to work in that field? Yes. Uh, while I was at Wake Forest, um, they wanted to go ahead and return back to that roots of the profession, which is taking the PA profession started by taking Vietnam corpsmen medics, Navy medics, and putting them into this mid-level role. And when I went to Wake, I was like the first one of the first, you know, special operations guys that ever, that was the first one they ever had, but they were getting back into having more veterans. And that next class, they had a PJ, Air Force PJ, they had a 18 Delta, and then they also had a um, Navy EOD guy. And every single year since then, they've been increasing the amount of special operations guys through there, which is encouraging. And as I look around, you know, the other medic in my platoon ended up going to medical school. Um, and I just hear stories of guys jumping into the PA school thing or med school or EMTs, uh, first responders. And it's, it's awesome to see. And I mean, those are the people you want if your kids and your family are pinned underneath the car because, you know, they've been there, done that. Right. And uh, one of the one of the guys, what he was saying, who, who was on a previous episode was a lot of the um, like things that are revolved around trauma, like bleeding or whatever, a, a lot of the deaths that result from that are preventable, but people just don't have the training. And that would include uh, police officers. Um, not, not all. Some some departments have been trained on, on uh, cat tourniquets and things like that. Uh, but it, it really makes a difference. Uh, and, and it's really what should be kind of basic and what one of the guys was saying is people should really have trauma kits at home or trauma kits in their car versus having a first aid kit, you know? I agree. You know, and case in point, I have a, a patient of mine um, who was overseas and uh, he was on a vacation and he was riding a motorcycle and had an accident and his leg was crushed, you know, right at the knee down, you know, just mangled. Wow. And, He's laying there on the road and like he's surrounded by his group of, you know, riders and none of them, you know, were prepared. None of them had anything. And literally he's like laying there. He's like watching this blood just pump out of his leg and he's feeling himself. He's like, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to, this is how, this is the end. And out of the crowd, you know, he like looked over and magically this dude walked up, slapped a tourniquet above the knee. Wow. Um, cinched it down, stopped the blood flow, stopped the blood loss, and, um, you know, sat with him until the EMTs got there and they packaged him up. And, you know, my, my patient lived and, um, you know, he, he was like, I, he's like, I, I never got to thank the guy, but, you know, the guy was a ER doc, trauma surgeon, and knew exactly what to do and prevented, you know, a death right there. And that you're absolutely right. I think people need to be 
very um, well versed in, you know, these stop gaps, these emergency things, because you see as a medic, you know, how quick it is to bleed out from a femoral injury, um, you know, and that's relevant if you break a femur, you know, you see broken femurs on sports fields. Um, so yeah. you're absolutely right. You know, having a medic bag is more important than band-aids and blisters. Right. Like the first aid kit is really very basic, like, you know, bacitrin and, and band-aids and something like that. Um, yep. And another thing that I learned was it in order to stop bleeding, if you can find where, you know, where it's at, it literally just takes like a finger or two of pressure uh, and, and that'll pretty much do the job. Sure. And I think, you know, a lot of good things that um, guys are putting out. I see these these former medics that are getting out there and putting on these trauma courses, nine line peril. You know, guys like that are making it happen. Yeah. Um, but they teach you how to find pressure points. So where does a major artery like your femoral artery run along a long bone like your femur? And how can you apply the proper amount of pressure to stop that bleed until you're able to get your tourniquet out? Because, you know, uh, time equals blood um, in a trauma situation, just like, you know, time equals a brain in a stroke victim. So the faster you're able to expedite and multitask, you know, ensures success for your patient. Now, the the tourniquets are, that's not like a long-term solution. That's just in order to stop the bleeding enough so you can get to a hospital or a surgeon or something like that, right? Yeah. Some, and my grad school project, uh, was on my, my thesis was on tourniquets and the misconception. A lot of people believe that you can only keep a tourniquet on for X amount of time. Um, and working, you know, in sports medicine and orthopedics, you know, when people are doing, you know, total knee replacements and et cetera, the tourniquets on for a couple hours. Um, so, you know, what, what you really need to do is when it comes to tourniquet one find the right tourniquet and you know those cat tourniquets are great we use them they're coming out with better ones um special operations um uh, tourniquets pretty great too it's got a lot of metal components um but it's the proper application you could have the best tourniquet in the world but if you put it on improperly um you know you're not going to have success and a lot of people fail to you know hit some of the basics and i'm sure some of your guys have talked about it one you know putting it on you know, skin to tourniquet to skin rather than overclose and, you know, overclose, it loosens up, moves on you, putting it on a long bone, like your humerus in your arm or your femur in your leg versus, you know, your calf or your forearm, um, you know, and then, you know, making sure you get adequate hemorrhage control or you stop that bleed, um, and always reassess anytime you move a patient, you know, basic stuff like that. Right. So, like, when you mean, uh, when you say getting adequate hemorrhage control, you mean, like, making sure it's tight enough, or is that what you Yes. Okay. Yeah, you, you you know when it's working, when, you know, your patient is screaming because it hurts. Okay, right. And, and, the, and the blood is stopped. And uh, I think a lot of people, you know, you want that blood to stop completely. Right. Okay, so, you know, in, in talking about medics who have gotten out and continued in the, into the medical field, you yourself have done that. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it is you're doing these days? Sure. Yeah. So I got out, um, in 2010 and I, I had a plan, you know, and I, I recommend anybody listening who's been, you know, thinking about getting out or, you know, getting ready to retire, you know, have a plan. And that's what got me through, you know, the hard times, you know, the frustrating times is like, I have a plan. I'm going to stick to that plan. You know, just like we say in the teams, you know, plan your dive, dive your plan. And, um, my plan was get out, go to the University of Connecticut, get my undergrad, and then go to grad school and uh, physician assistant grad school. 
So I did both those and, you know, it was a little difficult at first because I got out, you know, getting paid X amount of dollars living in San Diego to, you know, trying to rub two pennies together to make the, the rent um, with my wife. Um, but I knew if I grind through it, just like Buds, just like 18 Delta, just like any of the courses I've been through, just like war, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I finished grad school in 2014. And uh, I now work as a physician assistant in Florida, um, and I partnered with the doc that recruited me out of grad school and another two guys, and I'm a part owner in you know, two medical practices where we do a lot of wellness and human performance medicine. So we work with, like I, we talked earlier, but I work with um, a good amount of, uh, we call them you know, tactical athletes or special operations guys. Um, to improve their, you know, functional fitness, their metabolic capacities, um, and get them, you know, stronger, faster, um, and back to that, that fighting shape. And we work with a lot of, um, local, you know, professionals. I see a lot of, I see docs, lawyers, um, business professionals in the area. And, um, we have a large civilian, you know, clientele. And then we also, um, the doc that I work with is the, uh, he's a, um, functional, uh, he's a functional doc for the, uh, Washington nationals, the capitals, the wizards, uh, and the Oakland Raiders. And he just picked up the Cardinals and the, um, uh, Phoenix coyotes. So nice. we do a pretty wide group, but it all involves around getting better and living healthier, um, and doing it naturally. We do a lot of supplementation. So, you know, how to prevent arthritis, you know, by taking your fish oil and you know, multiple vitamins and eating healthier and cleaner, um, and preventing injury. And that's really the big thing is returning back to the earth. And that's what we do. So are you guys doing a lot of like exercising or, or crafting programs for people specifically, or are you dealing more with uh, the nutritional side and, and like planning it? So we, we, we have a great uh, program. Um, so we have our, our, our thing, which is called lifestyle performance medicine. Um, you know, we have a nutritionist, we have a movement therapist, we have a massage therapist. Um, so we build, you know, these, all of us work together and build these components for the person. Um, I see people when I, when they come in, I look at their entire history. So for example, if I get a guy like me coming in, I'm asking them, Hey, how you ever been blown up? Do you have any TBIs? Um, you know, I, I look at, do you chew tobacco? Do you drink? How often do you exercise? What intensity um, to find how much stress there is put on that body? Um, after that, I go ahead and get a bunch of labs and I look at their anabolic panel. So how does their testosterone and estrogen relationships affect are, are affected by stress in the body? And I try and correct that nutritionally. So, you know, whether it's to supplement well, you know, to add you know, certain supplements to improve sleep and regeneration at night, um, or if it in, involves, you know, using some, you know, stuff to improve growth hormone function and, and muscle repair and bone repair. So I deal with that on the medical side and then I'll make my recommendations and we'll send them to, you know, the nutritionist and have her go ahead and detail how their food intake is, you know, how many calories they're burning, you know, at rest and how to modify that diet around there, how to increase protein, um, in their diets and burn cleaner. And then we, you know, send them over to the movement therapist who does a functional fitness screen to see, where are they most likely going to have injury based on, you know, how they walk, how they jump, how they move. Um, and we pull all our resources together. And then our, our massage therapist hits like 
you know, deep tissue, you know, muscles like your psoas muscle, you know, paraspinous muscles and, you know, quads and hamstrings to release them and allow better movement, more functional movement and um, improve performance. So all of us together you know, build this plan around this one individual. Oh, that sounds great. Um, it's kind of like all encompassing. Uh, you know, that's pretty interesting because you have, you know, you have like very basic, um, you know, people just want to get in shape or whatever. And, and somebody with a certificate just kind of, you know, do this workout. But to have someone who's going to sit there and check your testosterone levels, check, uh, you know, run these tests and things like that. I think that's a, a great service. Um, so, uh, and, and it's interesting that you bring it up. I've had a guy on here, um, who is in a, in a senior position at, uh, the, at USASAC. Yes. And one thing he was talking about was that they're trying to smarten up the way they train, smarten up the way they diet and, and kind of, uh, you know, because in, in the industry of health and, and wellness, there's always new studies and new uh, kind of trends and and things like that going on. So I, I guess it would make sense for the military athlete, for the infantryman to try and stay up to date with, you know, the newest research and, and information. Right. And, and, you know, you're absolutely right. We, we do see a lot of military. I see a lot of CrossFitters. Um, you know, I see a lot of people that train really hard and there has been a, I guess, an enlightenment with, um, athletes across the board, whether it's the tactical athletes, whether it's the hardcore crossfitters, whether it's your power lifters, um, you know, it's training smarter and reducing stress in the body. And once you realize that and you implement that, you perform at a better level. Um, you know, I get a lot of people that come in and they're like, yeah, I work out six days a week. And I look at them, I'm like, you're overtraining. And right. you see that and you see how it affects the body. And, and what we think of as stress as human beings, like we think of a deployment, we think of kids, we think of bills and family. And, you know, our body looks at it from a primitive standpoint, like, am I getting overworked? Um, am I e eating enough? Do I get enough magnesium? Am I drinking adequate, you know, ounces in water? And when you don't or you meet that, your body's stressed. And as a result, it as a compensatory mechanism, it tends to shut down and hold on to stuff and decreases performance. So you're absolutely right. We work with Exos, and I don't know if the guy from USASOC mentioned, but Exos um, was the former athlete's performance. Uh, we have a great working relationship with them. And they do a lot of, you know, when we talk about function and, and movement and workouts, they build that. Um, and the doc that I work with is, uh, he's the, the, the doc for, um, the NFL players uh, association. So all of our stuff is built around that and it's how to rest the body to improve performance. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, a lot of people overtrain. They feel like if I want to lose weight, I need to work out harder and eat less when the correct answer is I need to work out smarter and eat more. Right. You know, it's 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 such a common misconception and things that I've seen um, because I, I was personal training for a while for a couple of years here in New York. So, you know, I've, I've dealt with a bunch of different people. And um, I think the overtraining is a very uh, popular and common uh, mistake that people make. And and even like with some of my friends, like, you know, like we, we work out together and, you know, I'll say like, yeah, you know, I'm resting today. And 
it's like, oh man, you know, you're you're soft or whatever, you know, just to kind of give me shit. But I feel like there's not an, an attempt to understand it uh, versus just trying to be, you know, macho or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, no, you're right, and um, that whole mindset of you know, remember that uh, is it Planet Fitness commercial like that big dude? I pick things up, I put them down. Yeah, yeah. Um, just brute strength, like that works for like one percent of people who just are freaks and never get injured. But when we try and tough things out and and do that, our bodies break down eventually. You know, I see I see guys from the unit, or I see guys from you know the teams, and you know after sixteen deployments, I don't care how badass you are your body is going to break down and underperform. And I see guys right. at the highest level who have testosterones and they're like, you know, low two hundreds and you're like, it boggles your mind. But the same thing is applied to those of us that work out all the time and don't give ourselves a rest. Your body shuts down and it goes into a protection mode. So you're right about taking a rest day. Um, it's unconventional, it's new, but when you, do that and then you outlift you outperform your peers because they don't do that you see the value of it and um yeah that's what we do is you know education is the biggest tool for better performance right right okay so kevin um can you share a story of uh you know maybe a deployment or even a story from your book uh just so the listeners can get a small taste of it sure um you know we like we talked about uh you know i deployed to Ramadi in, in 06 and um, <clears throat> it was a, a, as we would call, and, you know, we say it was a target rich environment. Um, you know, the Mouj uh, or Al Qaeda had really put Ramadi and, you know, immersed in, themselves in the, in the culture. And, you know, we deployed out there. So we started doing some work. I mentioned the uh, three, six, three, eight Marines that we worked with. Um, we worked with the first of the five, oh, second um, army grunts um, and helped them secure that city did a lot of sniper overwatches, but the biggest thing we loved to do, do were direct action missions. Um, and as you know, the months wore on, you know, we started to get, you know, I guess you get, you get beaten down. Right. And, um, you know, one of the things we started to do was supplement with augmentees or reservists. And we had this one guy, doc, Chris, and, uh, old Chris was, he was like a grandpa, right? So he went through buds, <laughs> legit grandpa. And he went through buds uh, back right after Vietnam, and you know did his four years and and did his you know time in the teams, and then went on reserve duty through Panama, through Grenada, through Desert Storm, and it did nothing. Stayed in reserve status, and um, right around the mid two thousands, the Navy tapped him and was like, yeah, it's about time you deploy and you 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 earn your bird. So. Doc Chris was a chiropractor and also corpsman. So he deployed with SEAL Team 3 Charlie Platoon as our, you know, camp doc, right? So if you had like jock itch or, you know, foot fungus, go see, go see Doc Chris. And um, it was great for me because, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to deal with that stuff. It was just like trauma for me and the other medic and everything else was just, you know, send it to Chris. And he also had to get the mail. Um, so we titled this, this chapter, The Mailman Delivers, in the book. So, uh, you know, Chris was a creature habit in such a way like, you know, when you're like when you're at like camp or something, like one of the counselors or, you know, um, 
or like your, your dad or something like that, you know, always carries like his stuff all perfect and, you know, goes to like brush his teeth and he's got his towel, everything perfect. Well, that was yeah. Nestler. Like, you know, even had like dental floss on deployment, like who flosses her teeth <laughs> on deployment? You know what I mean? Um, would read the newspaper, you know, like perfect. Uh, um, so we went on a raid once and we were, the assault train was pretty heavy. We're hitting multiple targets and we needed guys to man the turrets. <clears throat> so old Nestler gets the tap to man one of the turrets. And, and immediately, you know, you see that on the, on, on the op board and you're like, Oh Jesus, man, this guy hasn't fired a 50 cal since like Nam, <laughs> you know? So he shows up, you know, at the trucks, we're getting ready to jock up, mount up, move out. And his gear's all perfect. It's never seen the sand or the dust of Iraq. You know, it's always been in like storage. Um, his Molly system was brand new. Um, you know, everything was stenciled perfectly. You know, those that don't deploy usually has ample time to prep their gear. And that was Nestler. So, uh, you know, guys give him a quick rundown on how to, you know, headspace and time to 50, you know, immediate action drill, work the laser. And he buttons up his chin strap and he really looks like out of place. And he gets up there and we roll out. So long story short, we go ahead and, you know, hit this target. It was multiple targets. And you have to read the story because it's great. You know, we get into a fist fight with one of the Mooge up there on the rooftop. Um, you know, it was a big bomb maker. And as we're loading up the prisoners over this huge wall, you know, vehicle one just starts engaging like right at our 12 o'clock you know and it's like one of those you just if you're holding on a prison you just drop them take a knee you know pick up position cover return fire whatever and um it's just vehicle one shooting and you know he burns through 100 rounds a little bit more and um you know he gets on the radio and it's nestler and he's like uh you know he gets on he gets on the radio and he's like eight Mooj down about 110 meters. You know, they're flanking with RPGs and PKCs as calm as if he was cutting his toenails, you know, <laughs> in the bathroom. And we're like, what? And, you know, we go ahead and throw the prisoners on there, jump in the trucks. And immediately we get on the inner squad on the way back. Guys just start talking shit to Nestler. God damn it. Nestler, you know, bringing, you know, you don't even go out on ops. First time you do, you mow eight dudes down and sure shit. You know, um, we didn't have ISR that night and, uh, eight guys tried to flank us and hit the assault tra trains as we were coming out of the buildings. Um, and Nestler, you know, caught them all down with his 50 and, uh, ended up getting the bronze star for it. But the best part is the amount of shit talking at the end. Um, and you know, the platoon chief gets all pissed off that we're, you know, using their squad to like make fun of Nestler. And that's what team guys do. I mean, you just make fun of people and Nestler got, got the, the brunt of it and he deserved it. You know, we give him shit cause he's the mailman. Like, God damn, I wish the post office was this efficient. And, uh, you know, old Nestler gets down and he needs help getting out of the turret when we get back. Cause he's got like osteoarthritis in his hip and everything like that. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, I got done and, and, you know, we, I thinking back at that moment and it, the, the writing is awesome in that chapter, but it reflecting on it now. Um, and I didn't, it didn't dawn on me when I was at that age, but it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a frogman, if you're an operator, if you're an infantryman, you're always going to be that person. And that example, you know, was made for Nestler and Nestler drove that, that, that point home, um, with that, uh, with that action. And, and it just inspired me. Cause I was like, I don't care if I'm 50, 
safety. I'm always going to be a root and tune frogman. And uh, Nestler made it happen. Goddamn, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. That That's pretty funny. And, you know, that's interesting. Um, I've heard of instances of kind of Vietnam era guys for, for different soft, well, mainly for Green Berets or, or SEALs kind of being in some kind of role either in Afghanistan or Iraq. So that's a pretty interesting story. That's funny. Yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, I've, we ran into contractors and stuff, guys that are old Vietnam SEALs and stuff that were doing that. And, um, you know, they just, it's inside of them and just ticks. And, you know, wherever there's a war, they'll sniff it out and they'll be there. Did Like when you were growing up, did you ever read like Vietnam era SEAL books and stuff like that or no? No, I didn't. You know, um, I re- watched like one movie, uh, two movies. It was um, the rock, which had like about 30 seconds of Navy seals until they get shot, shot up by the, by the, um, Marines and then, uh, Charlie Sheen's Navy seals. And those were the two movies that I'd watched prior to joining. Um, I think GI Jane came out, but, uh, book wise, no, I never read any books. Um, it was only after I decided to join the teams, um, you know, the naked warriors seals, the Richard Marcinko collection, um, you know, the Dick couch books, uh, there weren't too many out there. Now there's, you know, a ton. Um, but I guess when it came to movies and, you know, I, I worked on American Sniper. Um, yeah, I did the technical advising for it and acted in the movie. But if I had to look back and say what movie captures modern warfare and, you know, um, it'd be Black Hawk Down. You know, that I think that movie is pretty, pretty well done um, yeah. and, and cap- captures shoot, move, communicate. Yeah, and one thing that was interesting about Black Hawk Down, because I actually read the book, um, it was as pretty accurate as you can get. Um, you know what I mean? Guys, I guess everything happens fast, and, and guys, you don't remember all the details, but um, that I, that was one of the things that made it very interesting. Not only was it a great movie, but it was very accurate as well. So I, I think the combo of that is what makes it kind of so prolific. Yeah, I mean, it 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 follows the book like to the T. And, um, I mean, it, it does a great job of respectfully, you know, detailing a clusterfuck and, um, you know, showing how Rangers, CAG, you know, SEALs, and as you know, there were team guys there, you know, yeah. how you put operators into a hornet's nest and things start going wrong, they'll make it happen and uh, win the fight. And, you know, that was a pretty big, it was a loss, but, you know, guys won it individually. Well, I mean, it, it was a loss in some ways, but if you like, uh, I, I think it was in that book where, where they talk with one of the generals who was commanding on that operation. And one of the things he said was, if you if you look at it from like just an engagement viewpoint, um, you know, a lot more of the bad guys were killed versus Americans, you know, in, in a situation where they were surrounded and outnumbered. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's a, a great, great point, you know. Um I think I was looking at, you know, I was, my wife and I watched Black Hawk Down the other day and I went on Wikipedia and Wikipedia put the numbers like close, like 5,000 enemy KIA to the 19 Americans. Um, and, you know, one, one, one loss of American life is too many, um, but it shows the integration and the interoperability of, you know, the 160th guys, guys on the ground and, and what an awesome display of military firepower and also just the American warfighter and how nobody stands a chance in the battlefield against them. Right. I mean, they're, you're, you know, you think about it, like, you're outnumbered, um, you're surrounded, and and there's chaos, you know, the battlefield is chaos, and all this chaos is happening, and, and people are getting killed. 
and they were still able to, you know, get out and, um, and you know, inflict more damage on the enemy. Um, so is that is that something that team guys do? Like, do a lot of team guys read about uh, prior generation SEALs? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I, I can't generalize for team guys. You know, I, I've got buddies of mine that read the last Punisher because, you know, they want to know if their name's in it and can they give me some shit about it? Um, you know, I think it's healthy to know where you come from. And, um, I like to read history. So I read a lot. Um, I actually had a very awesome, awesome, uh, interaction when I moved, got out of the Navy and went back to Connecticut. I had a buddy of mine in town that was like, Hey, there's a Navy SEAL in town. And you know, the typical response was like, bullshit. Um, you know, everybody wants to be a SEAL. And he's like, no, he's got a sticker on his truck that says Navy UDT SEAL, Navy, uh, UDT SEAL museum. Uh, And I was like, Oh yeah, he's gotta be a SEAL then. Um, so I get his name and I send him to, uh, I, I send his name to a buddy of mine who runs the database, you know, Don Shipley. And, um, okay, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah. Shipley's like, uh, sends me a message back. He's like, he's legit. And I was like, yeah. I was like, when did he graduate buds with Jesus? <laughs> and, uh, he was like, no, he was actually a scout and raider in, um, world war two. Wow. So what I did was I met up with this guy and, uh, you know, he was in his, uh, early nineties and this was a couple of years ago. And I just sat down, you know, I brought some pictures of the stuff that I did and I brought a tape recorder and I just sat it down and just listened. And it was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had because, you know, he's telling me what it's like to go through. So Solly day back in Fort Pierce and what it was like to, you know, do these ops and, you know, snorkel, mask, haversack, fins, and uh, a knife, and that's it. Wow. And, you know, just to hear how hard it was, you know, puts things into perspective when you say, oh, man, this piece of gear is really rubbing me the wrong way. It sucks, you know, and you look at what people did with much less and, you know, just innovation, and it, it, it inspires me. So to your listeners, you know, I encourage them to, to read about, um, you know, the Navy, especially back when the uh, ships were made of wood and the men were made of steel and, and you know, what it was like to, to be in total warfare. Wow, that got to be awesome. Um, the, you know, with those guys, obviously where anybody goes to when you're in combat and when you're in a specifically infantry or you're in a, a special operations unit, um, it's it's something to be proud of uh, in terms of what you're able to accomplish and survive. But what you know, what those guys were doing, and like you said, like just with a, a you know, like what they have, like bags of C four or something like that, with a K bar knife. Yeah, the haversacks. So they had forty pounds of C four. Um, you know, a couple of uh, blasting caps, and you know, a bunch of uh, trunk line to set it all up. But it's time fusing. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy. And I, the reason you know, when it came to writing the book, um, our book, The Last Punisher, you know, we wanted to you know, really put people under the helmet, um, you know, in the boots of what it's like to be, you know, deployed, uh, what it's like to do that job. Cause I feel like a lot of books talk about, this is what I did. This is how cool it was. And there's almost an air of like, you'll never be able to do it. And, um, I kind of find those books, you know, they turn, they turn me off. Like I don't, I don't like reading them. Um, but I read, with the old breed by uh, Eugene Sledge, who was um, you know in the Battle of Paolu and then Okinawa, um, he's from Mobile, 
uh, Alabama, and um, it was a very raw account of what it's like to be a grunt in, um, you know, Southeast Asia, um, and what it's like to be in the front lines in, in, in some of the most, um, you know, horrific battles, you know, we've ever, we've ever been a part of. Um, and that inspired me to write like that and write what it was like to be not just shooting and doing your job and these ops, but what it's like to be in a group of men who share the same, you know, goals, aspirations, um, values. And we wanted to talk about, and I don't know if you've read, um, Dave Grossman on killing. Yeah. Uh, I actually read that like a month and a half ago. I finished it. That's right. Yep. So we, we really wanted to dive into the psyche of, you know, a two percenter and what it's like to go ahead, engage the enemy, come back and be normal about it and really develop that, you know, through my eyes and, and what I experienced and, and what it takes to do that and how you find elements of your life and where it fits you or if you fit in that group or not. And, um, yeah, we wanted to talk about a little bit about the psychological effects of killing, if there are any, you know, with two percenters and how how that job is done. And that was one of the major themes in our book. And, um, you know, if you, if you read it on killing, you know that, you know, primarily two percenters are drawn to special operations. And we wanted to bring that out because I think we miss that a lot of times when you hear stories about guys coming back and you hear, you know, the narrative of PTSD. Everybody assumes since you've gone there, done that, you have PTSD and it's not always the case people do and i you know the more we blanket that statement out we do a disservice to those that actually have it Um, but we also do a disservice to people that don't have it by assuming everybody has ptsd so in the last punisher we want to talk about that two percent and what it's like to get up close shoot kill um and then transition back right and transition back and 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 kind of just get back into the the groove of society and and one thing that I found interesting reading your book. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a book called The Book of Five Rings uh, by Musashi Miyamoto. It's like a he's like one of the most famous samurai from the uh, like the warring period in Japan. No, I'm not familiar with that. I'm gonna write it down. No. Yeah, it's a very good book, and um, you know he was a a warrior, and then later on in his life he wrote this book um, and a philosopher and things like that, and it's really interesting and deep stuff. And one thing he spoke about, um, I was briefly skimming through a chapter, was about finding the rhythm, uh, finding the rhythm of whatever it is you're doing, your, the, you know, your, the daily rhythm of the daily routine or, or life in general, whatever it is. And then in, on my commute to work, I'm, I'm reading your book. And it was crazy because it, I read that at night before I went to sleep. And then the next morning on the way to work, I'm reading your book. And you were talking about how you guys got into the the rhythm of the battle, the rhythm of Ramadi. And um, I just thought it was an important and interesting uh, point to take away. And if people want, they can apply that to to anything, you know, not just combat or or the philosophy of combat, you know? No, you're absolutely right. And and, uh, I haven't read the book. I am going to read it now, though. But when it comes to developing a rhythm, you know, and... The book, I, I, I like our book because it's, you know, it's my story, obviously. Um, but I think there's a lot of applicable lessons you can extrapolate from it and apply to a daily life. And one of them is, you know, obviously I talk about overcoming adversity, you know, being a pretty much college dropout, joining the military. Um, but the other is finding success. And we show the success 
of, you know, the coalition forces, Army, the Air Force, the Marines, um, team guys on the battlefield. And when it comes to starting success, whether it's on the battlefield or whether it's in your personal life, you know, you have three meter targets and you have 10 meter targets. Um, the 10 meter targets always seem a little harder to hit, um, but you have to engage the ones that are in front of you. And when you do, you know, when you gauge the easy ones, the ones up front and personal, um, you start that pattern of success. And it's easier to roll that into the next obstacle, the next target that that, that presents itself, um, rather than trying to hit too many or look too far down the road. Um, and the same can be applied to battle. And that's where we found a lot of our success was, you know, obviously taking care of low-hanging fruit um, before we jump to the top of the tree. And, um, you know, you're right. And a unit recognizes that, but also we caveat that with overtraining or fatigue and how that affects a unit in battle. And we do address that in the book as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, like, so when, when you just said that, what I thought of was like basketball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depending on, you know, obviously people do things differently, but in a lot of cases, guys will start taking layups, you know, or, or shots close to the basket. And then those, once they start getting their groove, they back up a little bit and back up a little bit, you know, and then they're, they're knocking down three pointers, which is a further shot. And, and in basically that, what you just said can be applied anywhere, um, for anything, you know, like if you, if you're starting a business and, and, and for veterans, you know, specifically, uh, guys who got out and you're, you're kind of not sure what you want to do, like, you know, if you do one small task, you accomplish it, you know, you'll feel a little better. And then you you move to the second task and then you move to the third and then you're multitasking. And then before you know it, you know, you just created something and and now you're able. But I would say this to veterans to apply the same lessons and that you've learned in the military and just transfer it over because those are transferable skills, um, at least like what you internalize and what. And, and how your mental makeup comes about, you know? Yep. You're, you're right, man. And what I like to equate and I, and I do, you know, some talks on this stuff is, um, you know, we always look at society tends to look at veterans and say, you know, these are people that need more help or these people need, they need. Um, and I, I look at it differently. I think, you know, what they need and they deserve is less. Um, not as a kind of like, no, they'll just tough it out. But as a veteran, as you know, when you're on the battlefield, you change the battlefield. We talked about Black Hawk Down, and on the battlefield, there is no enemy that is worthy or you know can stand up to the American warfighter. Period. That's been proven time and time out. Politics is totally different, but mm-hmm. on the battlefield, nobody compares to the American warfighter. But when we come back, you know, people look at the warfighter and say these people need they need, but you know, I think we get into this rut where people believe that we need. And then when you get in that position, you're like, oh, I do need this stuff. But when it comes to changing, right, you experience success, you experience failure on the battlefield. But in the end, you end up winning. As a veteran, you get out, you apply that. Your battlefields, it's like algebra, right? It's just a variable, right? Your battlefield is X. You know, when you get out, you're just changing the civilian world. That is now X to you. And you just change your battlefield. So you use the skills that you have, like you mentioned. You know, you use your past experiences. You use that mental fortitude that's been forged through your time in the military. And you apply that to where you go next. Not everything is going to be met with success, 
You know that, but don't be deterred by it because you weren't deterred in combat. Right. You know, there's no reason why you should be deterred when you step in. Uh, um, and the biggest one that I learned personally, um, and which helped me through buds, helped me through grad school is small victories. You know, buds is, you know, 20, 24, 28 weeks long, right? You know, when you stand there at day one and you look at the, the goal line, you're like, that's a long way off. And it can be overwhelming if you think about just making it to the last day of buds. But you break it down, right, into small victories and smaller targets, 10 meters, 3 meter targets. But I just want to make it through first phase. I just want to make it through this month. I want to make it through this week. I want to make it through this day. Or if you're doing drown proofing, I want to make it through this minute. And when you make it through that hurdle that you set in your mind, that's a success. And it's easier to build that tempo that we talked about. So it's easy to build that success, um, you know, like you've done in the military. You set those goals, you know, attainable goals, short goals, small. You meet those goals and you just roll that into the next task you have ahead. You've done it, you know, overseas. You've done it doing your job in war, you know, whether it's stateside, um, you know, preparing for war in your unit or on the battlefield. Um, you just like I said, when it comes to algebra, you change that variable. Your new battlefield is whatever you step into in the civilian world, and you use those same skills that you've you know, that you've uh, grown while you're in the military. Right, and one thing that's interesting is in the civilian world, uh, the the lessons learned from warriors has been something that is uh, ha- it has a high value depending on on where you go or depending on the level of understanding of the the civilian. So that's why that's the reason why books like The Art of War or books like The Book of Five Rings are are being studied, you know, by Fortune 500 company CEOs or while one of these big companies will hire a, a former Navy SEAL or a former Green Beret or a former Marine to come in and talk to the the top 5 executives of the company and all they want is to learn about that mindset and that way of doing things that that you've built up through your your trials and tribulations in the military, and it's high, it's very valuable. And I think just from from conversations I've had with people, and from you know things that you read on the internet, um, a lot of veterans will come home, and for whatever reason, they're discouraged, and then they're not realizing the value of what they have in their mind. You know, it's not to say like, oh, I have this company or whatever, but you, you have the mind to do it. And I think that's something that's very important and, and it's kind of overlooked in some cases. Yeah. And the biggest thing is you have the potential to do it. Um, and people miss that. And I think where you can make as a veteran, you can make the biggest impact. Um, you know, this is, this is my line. I use it all the time, but you know, you know, what's more dangerous than a knuckle dragger. And we refer to ourselves as knuckle draggers is an educated knuckle dragger. When you get out, you know, you have the power. You've done it before. You've done it with your hands. You can do it, you know, in the fight and win. Um, but in order to effectively communicate with, you know, people that make big changes, you know, in this country, in your community, it's it's through it's, they're educated people. And I strongly encourage veterans when they get out, you know, go back to school, get educated, you know, be able to have that piece of paper because it really – does make a change and it gives you more credibility you know people don't look at you as just that exotic you know specimen that's been on a battlefield served with a a battalion or a team or a group 
Um, but you're in that same, you're, you're, you're now one of them. Um, you know, those that have graduated school and it's, I, I firmly, you know, promote and push people to get educated because it's important. And also, you know, it's great edification for those going through school, kids going through school that have no idea what it's like to be in combat, no idea what it's like to work as a medic, no idea what it's like to engage the enemy or understand what evil is overseas. And it helps, you know, educate them as to, you know, what's going on outside of the little bubble. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, during obviously during election season, you know, people are divided, you know, you either with this candidate, that candidate, whatever. But and then what comes with that, especially with this new uh, connectivity that we have, where everybody's connected through social media or the Internet is, you know, everyone kind of becomes experts on 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 issues. Right. And one thing that's that comes up with every presidential election is foreign policy and um you know if there's a war being fought what's the deal with the war should we be there should we not be there and a lot of times people who are kind of just stuck in their bubble uh they'll have hugely popular misconceptions about what's going on like like what's going on in Iraq you know like a lot of times people who um like, like, let's take American Sniper, the movie, for example, right? Uh, there was a big issue with, um, they were, the, the SEALs, uh, you guys were referring to the guys you were hunting down and fighting as savages, right? And and people had a big issue with that. And I'm like, the issue is, like, you're not putting it into context. Like, they're literally going after guys who make bombs, who, who blow up, you know, these munitions in, in crowded marketplaces or, or, or anywhere where they think they can instill fear. And and uh, one of the things you said in the book is like, you know, they're kidnapping people and things like that. And that that is savage. You know, that that's something savages do. And it's not to say that all Iraqis are savages, but the people that you're fighting are savages. And it's just I think people lack perspective and people don't really do research. And that's a part of what um, them being inside that bubble. That's a part of the negative uh, effects of that yeah and i you know i remember when when chris uh chris did a few of his interviews and you know we we talked about it afterwards and uh i think he got caught using his own words you know against himself um and you know it's absolutely true you know i i we were very careful you know when using the word savage because it could be misconstrued um and i got to work with a lot of really good Iraqi army guys, um, you know, and people that cared about making their country great. Um, but also we witnessed some of the most heinous diabolical stuff and stuff that you'd mentioned. Um, I don't know about you, but they weren't cutting people's heads off in my neighborhood growing up. So when I talk about that and the beheading videos and the murder squads that we would, you know, engage and we would, you know, find, fix, finish, um, those people are savages and their actions are savage. And, you know, when you talk about it as a veteran, you know, people are always going to gutter snipe you and try and hate on, you know, how you say it or what you say, but you have to explain to people, you know, what you've seen because they don't show that on the news, you know, they'll show what the Kardashians, what, what journey they're on this week. But right. they won't show you 
the evil enemy that you're fighting um, and why they're evil. And it's important to tell those stories. And we want to tell that with The Last Punisher. And I, I, I encourage more veterans to talk about that. Yeah. And, you know, it's and now you kind of see it with um, ISIS, um, you know, because they have like this whole propaganda social media machine rolling. And, you know, they, they tape a lot of this shit, like the beheadings or whatever. But and it, it wasn't so widespread. But like you said in the book, you guys were, were dealing with that on the regular. Like like they would have these tapes and I think they would sell them at markets, right, in Iraq or, or give them out or something like that. Yeah, get them out, put them on the Internet. Um, you know, what what makes ISIS successful um, and what the reason why they weren't around and Al Qaeda was in the run when we were over there is we're just constantly hunting them. Uh, right. Um but now you have a fertile area where you can recruit and nothing is stronger, you know, as a recruiting tool for a highly um, uh, motivated, you know, highly um, uh, capable individual who has no money, um, who comes from these villages. If you show them, hey, I'm going to give you a gun, which means power. I'm going to give you money, which means power. And I'm going to give you as many females as you want. So you take some young impressionable man who you know has nothing going on because there's no work or jobs, and you give him that, you know, you're going to be able to recruit a ton. Right. And um, you know, the fact is, when you want to hunt evil, you have to be vigilant. You have to continuously hunt evil. We've left that, and now we are fighting an enemy um, that has been recruiting, has been doing these things uh, to further a, a diabolical cause. Right, right. And, you know, with the elections coming up, um, you know, I, I guess it it may depend on who, who wins the, the White House uh, to determine the direction of, you know, how we're going to go forward with, um, you know, completely eradicating ISIS and, and, and trying to stomp that ideology uh, that exists, really. And, and the reason why it's called a global war on terror, because this is really a transnational problem, Um you know, it's been going on in Africa. It's been going on in the Middle East for a long time. It's just now that, you know, some of these attacks are happening in the Western world that people are, and with today's day and age of, you know, all the information is up instantly, um, that people are starting to catch on to it. And I think it's, it's just, like I said before, it's important for people to kind of get out their bubble and, and do some research and and talk to people who were there, you know, li- listen to the stories from veterans of guys who were in Iraq from when you were there and, and and then, you know, compare, you know, see, this is what happened 10 years ago. This is what's happening now. And and it'll give you a better perspective. Um, so, Kevin, where can people go if they want to purchase a copy of your book? Um, I mean, you can go just about anywhere. Uh, we have them at Barnes and Noble Books a Million. Um, they're on the new release table at Barnes and Noble as soon as you walk in. Um, you can go to uh, Simon Schuster's website um, and order it there. You can order it on Amazon. Um, you can review it on Goodreads. Um, you can go to my website, www.kevinlacez.com. Uh, we have autographed copies there as well. Uh, but it's, it's everywhere. It's in airports. Uh, you name it. Um, we've been having some really good um Really good feedback, and I was actually hanging out with a buddy of mine. You might know him. Uh, he's Rob O'Neill. You know Rob O'Neill. Yeah, I, I know of him, but uh, yeah, I know yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah. You know Rob. So I was, I was hanging out with Rob up in New York uh, the week the book came out, and he wanted me to pass along to every single audience I talked to that uh, uh, 
Osama bin Laden's dying wish was for you all to go ahead and pick up The Last Punisher because it's a damn good read. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's a great book. And, you know, I would um, I would encourage the listeners to go check it out. Um, usually at after the episode goes up uh, on my website, I'll have what we call podcast notes. And it's like be a description of the episode. And, um, you know, any points of contact that you want me to put up, I'll put up there so people can can reach out to you if they want to. And um, and then we'll put up the link, you know, for your book. We'll throw it up there as well. Um, sure. Yeah. If you guys if you want, um, we're definitely a wife and I run all of our social media um, and do everything our own. So you can follow. Uh, uh, I got a public Facebook page, Kevin Dauber Lace and um, my Instagram's at real Kevin Lace. And my Twitter handle is at Dauber246. And we'll be up to date as book signings, as new things come out. We've been doing a lot of new things. And um, we've got some really exciting stuff coming up in the future. Um, so, you know, shop the store at www.kevinlace.com um, or follow us on social media. And we'll, um, you know, might be coming to a city near you. Nice, nice. Okay, so, Kevin, I just want to thank you for taking out the time of your day and coming on, brother. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. It was great. And um, thanks to everybody listening. Great conversation that I had with Kevin. Um, you know, not only did he serve his country in the United States Navy, but as he's come home, he's continued to work with veterans and, and do really good things uh, for veterans and civilians alike. Um, I really like what he had to say when he was talking about hit your three-meter targets, your 10-meter targets. Um, you know, just kind of get those small victories and then, you know, move on to the, the, the bigger and larger task. And, uh, that's something that can be applied to anything and to everyone. I, I think so. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, with that, we will conclude this episode. We are in the very beginning stages of working on a, a special media project, um, a, a documentary type project. Um, I will be releasing more details about it soon. And um, so here, my website is globalrecon.net. I have two Instagram accounts. I would like and encourage all of you guys to go follow globalrecon underscore Inc. Um, it is a secondary account that I am currently building. Uh, my main account is IG Recon. My Facebook account is FB Recon. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. And I'm also on LinkedIn to search Global Recon. I would also encourage you guys to subscribe, download, comment, and share with your friends and family so we can continue to remain at the top of the iTunes government and national categories. And that way, uh, we can continue to provide you guys with high-quality content. Um, we have some very interesting interviews lined up for you guys, so you're going to really enjoy the next couple of weeks of uh, podcasts. So. We'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.